Um, I want to begin, we're going to be in, in Hebrews chapter 12. If you've got your Bible, you can uh, go there with me. That's where we're going to land, Hebrews chapter 12, in our journey through the book of Hebrews. Um, I do want to start this morning by pointing out how you and I actually respond quite wrongly to difficulties. We respond quite wrongly to, to difficulties, to suffering. And I'm talking about as Christians, okay? I'm talking about as Christians. Um, th- this is the way to give a warm greeting. Let me just point out your flaws right off, okay? Um, you and I both hit a point of suffering and I think think wrongly. Here's what I mean by that. When trials break into our lives, when suffering happens to us, the most natural way that you and I respond usually lands in one of two categories, okay? On the one hand, we hit a point of suffering, and as a Christian, I think, well, if I'm a really proud person, this is the way I think, I think, man, I'm owed better than this. I've done nothing to deserve this kind of thing. This trial actually proves that God isn't loving in fact, I may, might say something in, in my own heart like this. How could God possibly allow this into my life? I deserve far better. Therefore, God must be a terrible father, right? I hit suffering, and immediately I lay blame on God because I think people like me shouldn't have to go through stuff like this. There's another ditch that we can fall into. The most natural thing when I hit a point of suffering Because if instead of being a really proud person, I'm a weak person, if I'm weak and prone to self-condemnation, I conclude that this trial proves that I'm actually unlovable. So in my heart, I might be saying something like this to myself, how could God possibly love me? I knew it. I'll never please God. Therefore, I must be a terrible person. It just seems like, as I've talked to so many of you and so many through the years, that Christians that hit times of suffering end up in one of these two things. Either there's something wrong with God, he's not actually really loving at all, or there's something wrong with me, I'm not very lovable, worthy to receive that kind of love. And uh, either way, I, I believe it's a ditch. I, mean, I don't just think it's, it's not just wrong thinking, it's tragic. It leads you down pathways that, that are going to take you far from God and far from his grace. So rather than thinking the most natural way, you know, kind of the the instincts we've created for ourselves, rather than thinking that way, I want to explore what I think Hebrews 12 is going to unpack for us, the right way to respond when when we're hit by trials. And man, to do do that, I was hit by, I I got my wife Teresa a book uh, this last week. Um, It's called uh, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot. You guys, okay, if I have to hear the word Elizabeth Elliot one more time, okay, I get it. But it's, the, I think, the only authorized biography of Elizabeth Elliot, and the foreword is done by Jerry, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. If you're familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata, she became a quadriplegic at the age of 16. Uh, it's still alive. It's amazing how long God has given her on this earth, but, but she's suffered much uh, all, all through her entire adult life. Well, at one point, the two, these two giants, Elizabeth Elliot and Johnny Erickson Tata, were able to meet together. They were both going to be speaking at a conference. So in the foreword to this book, Johnny uh, brings up this encounter that she had with Elizabeth Elliot. So at this point in their lives, Johnny has been um, a quadriplegic for about 10 years and has suffered a lot. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, by that point, had already been widowed from Jim Elliot, who'd been you know, struck down by those that he had gone to 
preach the gospel to for about 20 years. So they've had long, many years of suffering. Uh, so Johnny says this, we talked of many things, but land in the shared satisfaction that neither of us felt all that extraordinary. And I love this. We were simply followers of Christ who had plumbed the depths of his joy by tasting his afflictions. Those afflictions had cut deep gashes in our hearts through which grace and joy has poured in, stretching and filling our souls with an abundance of our Lord. Okay, that imagery of the gashes, you know, not minimizing the pain, not minimizing the suffering, the gashes left by the affliction, um, but poured in by grace and joy. It says, when Elizabeth got up to leave the room, she stood, gathered her things, but before she left, she turned and said with her chin high, suffering is never for nothing, Johnny, which would end up becoming, you know, the title of a book that was, that was uh, actually printed after her death. But anyway, after hearing that quote, Teresa actually sent, sent that quote to me. She's like, oh, you're going to love, even the forward is so good. You know, sent me the quote. Um, I got to think about this, and, and this, I'm going to, you know, kind of step into geeky right now, so just work with me on this. There's this, there's this ancient uh, art called kintsugi. It's a Japanese uh, way of art, and I want to show you a, a display of what this looks like. So kintsugi is this, this art form where these Japanese artists have figured out a way to take a piece of pottery that's been broken, and normally it's just like earthenware. It's not anything valuable in and of itself. It's a simple, common, but often used bowl or vase or something. And it's broken, and then they, this artist puts it back together, and often by sealing it with, with gold. So at the end of the day, this, this piece is of far more value, certainly more beautiful uh, than what it was before it was ever broken, right? Far, far more value. One of the descriptions, it says this, it treats breakage and repair as part of the history of an object rather than something to disguise, so as I thought about that, I actually heard a podcast from a Christian artist that, that picked this up, you know, and started, you know, making the analogy between that. What I'm saying is I think that that, that art form is actually what we're going to be learning from, from Hebrews chapter 12. It's what Johnny was talking about, the afflictions that had cut deep gashes in our hearts, right, are actually the channels through which grace and joy is poured in. I, I believe that with all my heart, you guys. I believe that. I believe in my own experience, I'm able to tell you the gashes, the deep wounds from affliction have only been the channels by which something beautiful has been poured in, and I want you to learn that. So I'm trying to invite you into Hebrews 12 here. Guys, you don't have to be extraordinary to learn these lessons. I'm going to go back to what we've said all the way through Hebrews chapter 11. This is not about how much faith you can muster, how big your faith is in your soul. No, no, no. It's about turning your eyes toward our loving Heavenly Father and learning the lessons of, of Hebrews chapter 12, how to do that, how to fix your gaze on our Father and find that afflictions are actually something we're going to welcome and learn from. So very uh, first passage we're going to look at, Hebrews chapter 12. Um, actually, let me read the first three verses to ca- catch us up into the sweep of Hebrews chapter 12. So therefore, it says, since we have such a great large cloud of witnesses that that grouping of people from Hebrews chapter 11, right? All those incredible men and women surrounding us. Let us lay aside every hindrance, the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, 
Keeping our eyes on Jesus. Such an important phrase. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy lay before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Now here's where we're going to start with today's passage, verse 4. In struggling against sin... You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or lose heart when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, punishes every son, every son that he receives. Um, the point that I think we're going to get to in this little passage is this, as, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we fix our eyes on our Father, I am deeply loved. Guys, you have to know this. You have to believe this. You are deeply loved, but I'm incomplete. I need to welcome God's help. I'm, I, I'm less than what I need to be. There, there's inadequacies in me that need to be filled. And so the, I think this passage is going to help us Get our eyes focused on, on Jesus because I am loved and he's completing me in this. So one quick little explainer, that verse four, our struggle against sin, you know, not resisted the point of shedding blood. He's not talking about resisting sin as in sinful temptation. He's not saying, oh, you've not fought off sin in your heart uh, to the point of dying. He's not saying that. He's talking about the outward sin. He's talking about, look, what happened in verses one through three. It was sinners, right, in verse 3, that cut down Jesus, that murdered Jesus. It's these outside afflictions that have been going on, right? In Hebrews 11 also, especially starting in verse 35, where, where people were tortured and murdered for their faith. What he's saying is, you're not a martyr yet. Like, in other words, if you're reading this, you're still alive, right? You've not yet resisted those outside pressures and that affliction that's happened to the point of, of death. Obviously, you're still alive. You're still hearing this word coming to you. But what he's saying is, but there's more afflictions yet to come. And maybe some of their company had actually become martyrs. But he's like, no, you, you haven't, you know, things have calmed down or whatever. You've not yet resisted the afflictions coming at you to the point of dying. Um, but there's more happening. And you're probably asking the question, why does bad stuff keep happening to me? And why does bad stuff keep happening to your people all around? This doesn't seem right, God. Again, is it that you're not very loving or is it that I'm not very lovable? Why does bad stuff happen to us? Why do afflictions from the outside keep hitting us? And what he's saying is, well, actually, I love this in verse 5. You're actually forgetting something, something very ancient. He's going to go back to a proverb from about a thousand years before the time that this was written. You've forgotten some beautiful wisdom that came down to you. And he starts quoting from Proverbs 3. I'm going to show you what Proverbs 3 looks like just from Proverbs 3. And the reason the words might look a little differently as you see them and compare them to Hebrews 12 is, you know, what you've got is ancient Hebrew and Proverbs translated then into Greek in the book of Hebrews, now coming to us in English. And so there's some synonyms and some things that get changed around. But here's what it looks like in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son. Do not loathe his discipline, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves 
just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Now, I want you to see there's some beautiful, we call it Hebrew parallelism. In other words, in Hebrew poetry and wisdom literature, he'll repeat himself a couple of times to, to make a bigger point, to like emphasize. And so what you've got there is despising the Lord's instruction and then loathing his discipline. But, but look at how instruction and discipline are put in parallel form to each other. It, it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, you've got instruction, like positive teaching. And on the other side, you've got the discipline, like trying to weed out the stuff that you're thinking that you shouldn't think. You've got to change something, but you've got to add on other thinking. So instruction and discipline are both part of filling in the gaps of what we don't yet understand or know, right? We need both positive instruction and we need correction. We need, we need to be disciplined. But look at that. The Lord disciplines those that he loves. This isn't God does this for people that he's so irritated with, that he's so frustrated with. This is the way a good father treats his son. In fact, the son that he delights in, it says. It's really a a beautiful, beautiful passage. The author of Hebrews is saying, you know, that's been in your book for a long time, about a thousand years. I think you're forgetting something. When affliction happens, I think this is what he's saying, guys. I think we've got to take our eyes off the sinners or the circumstance or whatever that is that's bringing the affliction at us, saying, I think you've forgotten something. This isn't about those sinners. This isn't about the source of the affliction and suffering that's coming at you. You've got to fix your eyes on your father. You've got to fix your eyes on Jesus. You've got to turn your attention away from the, the, the point of suffering and ask, what is my father trying to teach me? What's incomplete in me that he needs to add in, right? Because our Father is patiently instructing and disciplining us because we're incomplete, we're unprepared. But guys, I need you to know, God is for you. He is a loving Father. He's delighting in you as he goes to bring you through instruction, even discipline. Because guys, I wish, here's the thing. I wish that I could just learn everything I needed to learn by reading my Bible, right? I, I wish that I could just open my Bible and I could just get complete by just reading it. But we all know that's not true, right? It has to be put through like the testing of my life. It has to be kind of challenged and, and trials and afflictions seem to be the ways that God is able to like fully get that stuff in. I I just can't learn by reading my Bible alone. Suffering, trial, pain gives us ears to hear. Um, You've sometimes heard me quote C.S. Lewis on this, but it bears repeating. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. Pain is the megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So, Here's a really crazy, you want to do something? Turn back with me to Hebrews chapter 5 for a second. I want you to see something pretty amazing. And by the way, I'm going to run over here and grab my tea. Sorry for my voice this morning, guys. Um, Hopefully you're able to kind of push through my weak voice to hear the powerful voice of God in this. But back in Hebrews chapter 5, we ran against this mysterious verse that, verse 8, although he was a son he learned obedience from what he suffered. Talking about Jesus. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. This is one of those mysterious things about the incarnation. Whatever was kind of missing in Jesus, in his earthly like preparedness to, to, to go through crucifixion and so forth later on, whatever was kind of missing in his preparation for what was yet to come, the only way that he was going to gain that is through suffering, right? If the only way for the Son of God to gain something, to learn something powerful that he was going to need for coming days was through suffering, how do we think we're going to be immune from the need for suffering and affliction, right? So with that in mind, just this last week in, in my Bible read-through, I came to, to Mark chapter 1, where um, we get to Mark 1, and Jesus is uh, being introduced to the world by way of baptism. Here's what it says in Mark 1. As soon as he came up out of the water after, after his baptism, he saw the heavens open, torn open, the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice comes from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Some of you guys are doing the same Bible read-through plan, and you came, came across it. Like, same kind of language as we just saw from Proverbs 3 and, and Hebrews 12 about us. You're my son, and I'm well pleased with you, right? Immediately, here's what it says in Mark 1, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and the angels were serving him. Guys, here's what I'm saying. Hebrews 5, Mark chapter 1, something about the wilderness, something about hunger, something about thirst, something about affliction prepared Jesus, completed Jesus for what he was going to face down the road. And I believe that's what affliction does for us. Here's what I want to do. I want to go back to Hebrews 12, and I want you to see the next piece that he adds to this whole thing, uh, starting in verse 7, okay? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 7. Here's where he adds on to what he's just been saying. He says, endure suffering, he says. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, which all receive, then you're illegitimate children. You're not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of our spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. So here what I think we're, we're going to learn is that I am loved. I'm loved deeply. But I'm unholy. Not, not only am I incomplete, not only are there gaps that need to be filled, but I'm unholy and I need to welcome discipline to bring me to where I need to be. So guys, I do want to say a couple things as, as we enter into this part of the text. Some of you were not given a good earthly father. In fact, not only did some of you not have a good earthly father, some of you didn't have a father at all. Some of you had a distant, uh, you know, just... Yeah, distant father that wasn't very interactive with you or whatever, and some even abusive, right? Here's what I want to say to all of you as you enter into a text like this. This is God's way of giving you the ideal, right? It doesn't take away from the kind of scarred version of human fatherhood that you've experienced, but he wants to reset the ideal. This is the way fatherhood ought to be, and 
Thanks be to God, all of us now can call on that ideal father, our father in heaven, right? So, so let, let God reset what fatherhood ought to be. But then I also want to say this. So at Veritas, we have some incredible dads. I, I've met some of you guys. You're incredible dads. In, unbelievably intentional about being the kind of dad that God wants you to be. But I also know that this is true. Um, guys, we have some dads who are totally checked out and somehow believe that the, the spiritual kind of force in the home is on mom, right? Just leave that up to mom. And, and you're checked out. You're passive, barely interactive, barely have a spiritual pulse in your own home. Guys, this whole text right here is assuming that there are fathers who are intentional about the training, the, the discipline, the instruction of the Lord in the home. It's assuming that. If that's not true of you and you're a Christian, right? I, I can't speak to people who aren't under the authority of this book, but if you are claiming to be under, under the authority of this book, if you're a, a, a Christian, man, just be haunted by that phrase, like father, like son, Right? Like father, like son. We, we use that like your dad. Normally, we mean that in a good way. Oh, like father, like son. Look at him. Kind of like his dad. What I'm saying is if you're spiritually checked out, God help you if your children become like you are, right? I just want to say this passage, now I want to get back to God's point of view here, but I, I just need you to know it's assuming that you, you, you can look around and see a good example of a, of a father that instructs and, and disciplines us. I think it's really, really important. We can't miss that. But let's get back to what I think he, the bigger positive point. Guys, as a dad, there were certain things I wanted my children to like emulate, like kind of follow my pattern or whatever, right? And they were some simple things. I think this is what he's saying. You know, they, our human fathers disciplined us for some things that they thought were good. Like for me, it was things like this, like um, you got to try everything that's served to you on your plate, right? All my kids know this. They roll their eyes even now, kind of laugh about how, no, 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 anything that's put on your plate you got to try. You got to try at least a little bit. And now that happened in the home before we ever got to another person's dinner, right? This is at home. You got, I still remember Audrey putting one little green bean. I I would cut this so small, like, just give me anything, put it in her mouth. And she, you know, the gag, whatever. I'm like, no, this is not going to kill you. I promise you, right? You got to learn how to, right? Things like returning a greeting, if an adult especially comes up and greets you, no, no putting your head behind my leg, you know, no, no, you've got to look in their eyes, return to greet. You don't have to hold a whole conversation with this person. You have to learn how to say good morning. You have to, oh yeah, my name's Jeff, whatever. Like, re- be respectful, be honoring, right? First time obedience, right? You know, make me count to three. All you're doing is training me then how to count. No, no, no. This is about if I ask you to do something, you do that. First time obedience, right? Like, don't, don't train me how to be exasperated. No, no, no. This goes the other way around. I'm teaching you. I'm training you. So I'm, I'm just saying, those kind of things that we practice in our home weren't to make me look good as a father. It's because it was for their benefit, right? They needed to learn how to flow in culture and, and learn to walk in other people's shoes and be honoring, respectful, at, whether it's at a dinner table or an engaging conversation, whatever. It was for their good. That's what he, I think he's trying to say here, guys. Our heavenly father wants us to emulate him, but it's in holiness, in holiness. 
So again, in this Bible read-through, we just got through the book of Leviticus. Holy cow. There's a lot. There's a lot of thick passages in, in the book of Leviticus. But one thing that you can't miss is our Heavenly Father saying, be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. I want you, like father, like son, emulate me. I'm holy. And get, guys, isn't it freeing when we walk in holiness? No, seriously, the way that I think my, my children's lives now as adults is a little bit better because they just learned how to be honoring respectfully. Isn't it just a better life when we walk in holiness? When, when I walk in holiness, all of a sudden things are right between myself and others, and certainly between me and God, to walk around with a free conscience, to walk around with your head held high. There's peace with God, peace with man. It's for our benefit. That's what he's saying, guys. It's for our benefit to emulate his holiness. And so the same way that parents, you know, try to, to bring things, like, it, it probably didn't seem pleasant to Audrey to make her hold that green bean in her mouth until she could swallow it, right? And then she didn't have to, guys, I wasn't abusive. I didn't make her eat like a pile of green beans or whatever. Like, like, it, it, it was better for her. The same thing that what he's saying is sometimes the ways that he's teaching us to get us toward holiness, it seems so painful. This affliction, it's, it's legit. Those tears that streamed on your face are legit. The painful thing, the sickness, the, the broken relationships, the, the even persecution, the loss of job, whatever that is, it's legitimately painful but are we going to look at what's causing the pain? Are we going to look to our Heavenly Father and say, wow, God, you're actually trying to make me more holy. And as I gain in holiness, and it's for my joy, you're actually doing this not for your sake. It's actually for mine. All right, let's, let's look at these last few verses here in, in Hebrews chapter 12. <clears throat> he says, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time but painful. You guys, I just love the unvarnished way the Bible addresses this. He's not trying to pretend that this isn't true, right? No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, he says, though, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and the weakened knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed instead. Guys, nobody likes pain. <laughs> I mean, you're really a broken soul if you like pain, right? It's broken. Nobody likes pain. Nobody likes suffering. Nobody invites that stuff into your soul. We don't, we don't go looking for it. But when we're truly trained by it, when, when we're instructed by, disciplined by it, there's a peace, there's a righteousness. But guys, that's why these kind of times actually drive us toward the need for one another. And, and that might not be as obvious as you look at these verses here, but I do think that what he's trying to do is, is to say, you actually need each other to help you when your knees are weak, when your hands are weak. You need each other. Here's why. I think he's actually making, not a quote, but an allusion to a beautiful passage back in the Old Testament from Isaiah 35. Let me read for, for you from Isaiah 35. It says this, and you'll hear the echoes of Hebrews 12 in it. Strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees, say to the cowardly, be strong. Do not fear. You see somebody being cowardly. You're about to go into battle. You see somebody kind of getting weak. 
You turn to them. You say, be strong. Do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Say that to your buddy, right? What I believe is going on in Hebrews 12 is an allusion to that Isaiah 35 idea. I think what he's saying is, guys, look, there's other people around you in that same ordeal of pain. Strengthen not just your own tired hands, strengthen their tired hands. Don't just, you know, strengthen your own weak knees. Like, like help your brother. In fact, I love that. Make straight paths for your feet. The, the your is, is plural there. Your, your. I think what he's saying is, you know, if, if the way is kind of tough, like let's say somebody like a Johnny Erickson Tata is, is disabled, right? Well, what do you do for somebody that's having a hard time walking or disabled? You kind of clear the way for them, right? Hey, let me help you get, let me build a ramp for you, whatever that is. Like, let me, let me help you make a straight way so that you can actually keep going. I think what he's trying to do is say, guys, this is tough stuff. Going through affliction, actually, it, it, it's legit. We need each other. Sometimes I need you guys to remind me of these kind of promises. Because when I'm in the middle, especially on the front end of facing some suffering, I start going down those natural ways of thinking. I start thinking, what's with God? Is he not loving after all? I start thinking, what am I, unlovable? Am I just, have I checked out from any kind of help from God? And I need you guys to say to me, no, no, no. You got to take your eyes off that affliction. I need to point you back to your father who loves you. I need to point you back. And guys, I believe that you and I are supposed to create houses of healing. You know, this just happened to me, this Clearly not in my notes. Um, this just happened at Connection Group. Last time we met as Connection Group. I, I had gone through a, a little bit of a, a, a tough go for a couple days. And so I just commandeered the whole thing. I said, you guys, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm just going to be selfish. It's time for me to just let you know what's going on. And guys, there was another dude in our group. I mean, I, I don't know. I said my little spiel or whatever. I don't know. It took five minutes, whatever. All of a sudden, this dude just took over the whole group. Before long... All the dudes were crying. This is just the guys crying, leaning in. I've never seen anything like it kind of in a connection group where all of a sudden somebody else kind of boom. And it was, you know why? I was the one with weak hands and weak knees and somebody else was jumping. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment, right? We need each other. I, some of you have been around know that, okay, this is really going to take me into geekville. I, I can handle that. I've, I've been into reading... Russian novels lately. <laughs> I know, it's so stupid. Anyway, um, but there's a more recent Russian author, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He's actually only been gone now for like 15, 14, 15 years. Um, but he, he wrote about the awful state of the Soviet Union and the gulags, the, the terrible torture that was going on among their own people in these prisons. Spent a lot of time in a prison for having the audacity to question Stalin and etc. But in the Gulag Archipelago, this is, this is one of the, his most famous quotes. I want you to see this. Bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity, as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. He got to the point, and he defended this often. He was questioned about this, this quote. He defended it. But no, what I'm saying is, I didn't want to go through that. I didn't want to live in a gulag. I didn't want to live in exile. 
But now as I look back, I bless the prison. I bless those days. Because that's where I learned something deeper. The crevices in his heart were poured in with the gold. He, he had lost touch with his faith as a Christian. Through all that, he came to re-embrace Jesus Christ. It's an unbelievable story. And the affliction, the real affliction that came to him through a gulag. And mostly, honestly, through the voices of others who are going through the same kind of suffering pouring into him, these truths. They were pointing him to Jesus, which is what I think the author of Hebrews is doing as well, guys. We need to learn how to receive affliction, how to receive suffering, as if through the hands of a loving, incredible Heavenly Father. So Hebrews 12.2, again, guys, got to keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is our opportunity to be pointed toward Jesus. We're going to have communion now. And again, what a perfect day to have communion. This is our opportunity to once again say, Lord, I, I, I don't know what you're going through, but to, to bring that to him. Not all of you are going through times of affliction. We don't always. Sometimes he leads us by you know, in green pastures and by, by beautiful, you know, cool, still waters. That might be your, your case right now. Bless him for that. But you might be going through some level of affliction, suffering. This is our opportunity to turn our eyes toward Jesus, to recapture the joy that's set before us, to realize that whatever's going on in our lives is actually maybe, maybe even just God's ability to pour, be a father that pours into us pure gold, grace and truth that will complete us, make us holy. Because we don't want suffering, but man, I wouldn't trade, I wouldn't trade what God has brought into my life through affliction for anything in the world. And I bless the affliction for it, right? I, I hope you can too. I hope you're able to take communion with that kind of joy and worship in your souls. So the way that we're going to do it, we're going back to our, to our old ways uh, at Veritas with this. So what we do is you'll come to the tables that are along the back. They're up front here. We've got the gluten-free. We've actually got the individual little cups. But, but as you open this, uh, you'll find individual bread. So what you do is take the bread and just kind of dip it, dip it in, in, into the cup. It's beautiful, guys, that, to see that one cup because part of the imagery of communion is all of us partake together of one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. All of us partake together because one died so that all of us can partake together. And so you take bread and just carefully dip it in there and then, and then take it um, as we worship and as we sing. So will you stand with me? Let me pray for us and then we're going to take communion together. So Father, we're going to choose right now to say thank you for our suffering. We're going to choose right now, Lord, by faith to let joy be before us. We're going to choose right now to believe, even though our own heads are telling us different stories, different lies, we're going to choose to believe what you've told us is true. You are our loving Heavenly Father. 
And God, we, we know the inadequacies of our soul. We see the weakness of our soul. What we want, Lord, is not to stay there. We want for you to pour your grace and truth into our lives. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus. We want to be completed even through the afflictions that come to us because our gaze is on Jesus Christ who was not afraid of affliction, who was not afraid of suffering, was not afraid of even death itself because it was only in embracing it that we could have life. So we're choosing to follow his path, not the path of our own choosing, the path of Jesus, Lord. We recommit ourselves even now. Even taking communion is our declaration. We're following Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for instructing us, Lord. Left to our own, who knows where we'd be, Lord. Thank you for intersecting our lives with your truth the way you do. Receive our worship, Lord. You are so worthy of it. In Christ's name.